0: I'm your host, David Nage. This is Base Layer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. The views,
1: information, or opinions expressed during the Base Layer podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of ARCA, where David Nage is a principal. Arca is not responsible and does not verify for accuracy of any of the information contained in the podcast series available for listening. The primary purpose of this podcast series is to educate and inform. The podcast series does not constitute financial advice or other professional advice or services. Please do your own research.
0: This is David and this is your new episode of Base Layer. really excited to have Brooks Brown, creator and CEO at Noor with us today. Brooks, how are you, buddy?
1: I'm doing well, David. Thanks for having me. Great to talk to
0: you. Super, super excited about this. Uh, We were lucky enough to meet Brooks about a year ago. Um, And of course, you know, I had the opportunity. We begged and pleaded and and scratching (laughs) Claude to be able to support Brooks and his team. They are building NOR. Uh, We'll learn more about NOR, but we think it's going to be one of the supreme games out there in Web3. Whole world and ecosystem, so much narrative and story behind it. Uh, we'll learn a lot more about that. But what we'd like to do, Brooks, as listeners know, is we'd like to find out a little bit more about our our founders, our creators, before they actually got to their their company, their project today. And you have an amazing background. It's, it's such a cool background. So if you could just give us a little bit of a kind of a background story about yourself and how you got into the world of digital assets and thinking about building a new game in this new world.
1: Yeah, it's been a, I mean, it's been a journey for uh, 20 years. I've been working in video games or interactive or web in one way or another. Um, You know, my big breakout was getting a chance to actually write and do coding for StarWars.com for Lucasfilm online. They needed someone who could also write, but also someone who could code to start building out a couple things for them. And I was just giddy at the chance to sort of uh, throw my hat into that ring. Um, I wrote, I think my favorite piece I wrote was, I wrote Civil War letters from the front, but it was the Battle of Hoth. I mean, wow. if you're a Star Wars fan, it's just one of the more fun things to do is right, it is cold here, Matilda, but <laughs> as Chewbacca runs past me, it was so dumb and so fun. And I just, I'm, i I love doing that. Like the idea of world building has always been a thing, but being able to do it for such a massive property, being able to create a, I created a Holonet News uh, podcast where we pretended we were, you know, on the surface of Coruscant or on these different planets alongside the Clone Wars TV series, we had so much fun. And uh, at some point my boss uh, quit. And as is the want at Lucasfilm, uh, rather than hire someone new, they basically backfill with the people underneath you, and, uh <laughs> I ended up becoming head of digital marketing for LucasArts um, and kind of leading that charge. And, um, you know, all I ever wanted to do was make games. And I took this chance. I started building a a website sort of to sell Lego Star Wars 3. But the pitch was that it was actually a web-based MMO in Flash. This is 2011, which was cutting edge. It was wild and super exciting. And we ended up having just a massive amount of success with it. Won a Webby and a few other awards. Uh, got my own games team. Uh, helped bring Star Wars to the cloud. I just this weird way I sort of walked the line between, you know, creating content and whatever the newest technology was. Um, you know, I I brought Star Wars to social media. Like just weird stuff. I had a chance to do because of just being in the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. And and with that, um, you know, as Disney bought Star Wars, and I I don't think I could stomach working for Disney ever. Um, I got a call from Lightstorm Entertainment, and I will never forget that my first response was, um, I'm sorry, I don't know what you do. And the response was, oh, this is James Cameron's production company. And it was like, oh, I'm an, I'm an asshole. <laughs> <Just> like, <laughs> oh, great. This is how I want to start this. Wonderful. Um, and they, uh, after a series of interviews, I, I became vice president <laughs> and uh, led the digital move for the upcoming Avatar sequels and did that for a long time under the sort of i i say tutelage uh, but i mean i was a vp so i was i was pretty senior but you know i was underneath some of the best people at it, kathy franklin who led uh franchise still does for avatar she before that worked at disney and did a whole bunch of amazing work um and then uh john lando and james cameron of course but also the rest of the team behind it and it was four years of um basically a college education and how to build worlds and mm-hmm. being able to see it and absorb. Um, I took that and left when the films got delayed, uh, I think for the 90th time. Um, and I was like, I can't, my career is not at the point that I can wait a decade. I need to go release stuff. I have to be making things. And uh, Starbreeze gave me a shot. They gave me a budget and they let me take over VR and uh, some publishing stuff for them. And I got to make sort of my first, I don't know, art, project and and play with my theories about how meaning works inside of interactive. And we built this huge piece called hero that was a 40 by 40 uh, space that you could freely walk around as unreal based real time VR uh, mm-hmm. backpacked. And in it, we put you in a corner market in Syria. And we blew you up. And uh, you kind of had to make your way th- didn't have to you could make your way through a burning building to pull a little girl out from underneath rubble. Um, and we actually had an actress's hand reach up and grab when you'd reach for her hand in VR, like people collapsed to crying, it was emotional, and it was this amazing, like, testament to the power of interactive. Right. And, and this, this way that death and meaning and, and things play within storytelling and interactive is, is, has become my sort of rallying cry. and. Um, you know, that's kind of my background that brought us to Noor. I All of these sort of life experiences and the team behind it came from this. My joke for this group is, and I've, I've used this, I think I even used this in our first meeting, is the founding of this company is a bit like a bank heist almost. It feels like a bank heist movie where it's like, I need a person who can knock out that Smithson 72 safe that only twelve people in the world can know. Oh, yeah. Do you know Steven? Oh, I remember him from the job in Alabama. That's right. Like, it's like that moment, but for interactive where it's like, Hey, I really need someone who's got legal experience for, you know, an exceptional amount of business and mergers and acquisitions, who's willing to do weird technology, but also has done games and understands entertainment. Oh, uh, how about Jay Comas, who was at EA Google Activision and you worked with Lucasfilm and it turns out, yeah, let's grab him. Like it's person after person like that. And I've just been like lining up my crew. (laughs) Yeah. Just and it
0: and, is an amazing, amazing crew. And, you know, Jay and you and everyone there, it's just when we saw, obviously, the team that you assembled, it was it was like the Avengers. It was like, wow, it was like, you know, this is the kind of team that you that you just absolutely hand over fist, you know, try to support in any which way you can. And that was and the other thing that was really interesting for us is that when we found you and we found the team that you assembled, we started to see that. This was no longer just, you know, if you look at the the kind of the history of, of blockchain-based gaming, this, you know, it started back in around 2012 or so with Gambit and Hunter coin. And then that it morphed, you know, kind of morphosized, you know, in 2017 with CryptoKitties when NFTs started to become a thing. And then obviously the, the launch of Axie into 2018, uh, where you started to see this merge of gaming with NFTs. Uh, where obviously the notion of a kind of play to earn started to get to be where it is today. Uh, and so we started to see, you know, back in you know 2020, 2021, we started to see that there were those that were catching on to the the growth of Axie, the interest in Axie. Uh, and then we started to see later into 2021, teams like yours assembling that had just an amazing amount of experience, you know, 10, 20, 30 years at Lucasart and EA and Ubisoft and Google that were coming in because they saw that there is a new way to create a creator economy where you can not only build worlds, which you've obviously done before, but then you can have such a closer relationship with the actual participants in those worlds to the world and to the builders of those worlds. Now, you know gaming very well. Usually there's discords or there's reddits where you have a game out there and, you know, a lot of people will talk on those message boards and sometimes obviously the developers and engineers of those games read them. But with web three gaming, the idea is that you get to have a closer participation that the gamer and the builder have a closer bridge together than ever before. Um, And so that was one of the things that we found so, you know, utterly interesting about you and about obviously what you were building there. And so I would love for you to talk more about, the kind of the catalyst for nor so you're, you're telling us about you know hero and about this new kind of way of interconnecting you know the real world with virtual world and metaverses what is nor and how did you think about it how what was the the catalyst for that yeah
1: the I, the easiest way I think to describe nor and what we're doing is that it's a sports platform for the metaverse. And we don't mean that everything has to be football or soccer or baseball, but that sports as a thing, as they exist in our world, are games that people play that are intimately free. They're wonderfully free. I can go play soccer with my son, and I do often uh, out in the yard. And it's really the same soccer that Messi's playing. I can play basketball, and it's the same basketball. When I was growing up, I would watch Michael Jordan, and then I'd go outside and play basketball. They had the ability for me to sort of play the The thing we do with Nor is we take that concept of how sports works and we utilize crypto uh, in a way that I think it's most powerful form uh, to change how the economics works around these things and play with what it means to have sports in the metaverse. So we have a sport come in, developer builds a game and it's skill based and it's just free and you just simply play it. It's, it's not a play-to-earn game where people purchase their way in. Everyone can simply play it. Uh, the developers on one end uh, make the sport, and then we have the people playing. And then where I think um, we, we sort of take a cue from FIFA and other professional sports is we have an economy around it that I call the metagame. And the thing with crypto gaming in general is that it's primarily filled, in my experience, with metagamers. Uh, Which is not really a category that we've had very often in traditional games. Traditional games, we often sort of fold metagamers into games themselves and they end up having sort of a, we'll say a testy relationship. People who push metas inside of Dota, for example, are ascribed to it or care so much about stats and play that they have a, we'll say a tense relationship for those who simply want to enjoy the game. Okay. And that back and forth is the thing that games have that sports doesn't because in sports, the metagamers are people who are playing fantasy football. They're people who own teams. They're people who are agents. They're people who are like, there's a lot of ways you can play metagame in the world of sports. And we wanna bring those things to surround our sports, our games and give metagamers a chance to really do extraordinary things give players a chance to have free play true free play not the weird hyper pressurized uh, loot box gambling stuff that we do a lot in the free to play or traditional gaming space and developers be able to make enough money off of it and that setup we think as a platform is a very powerful thing because it gives to me it gives all three quadrants the things the three parts ultimately what they want Metagamers want a space that they can strategize and go wild and really sink their teeth into Mm -hmm. and most of them don't actually really like to play the game at a competitive level. That's not what they do. They might be forced to in traditional games, but my experience they tend to like just want to really enjoy the spreadsheets. It's not my world. I like playing Dota. I like shooting people in the face like (laughs) um, I I like I like doing those things at a competitive level. The meta has never been a thing I've, I've sort of jumped into. Yep and those players should have their game and then the developers should be able to have their thing. And and crypto does this weird thing because we can actually literally program uh, through these uh, contracts you might call smart. uh, We can say how things interact and the rules around them so everyone's clear and has precise understanding of what they're able to do at any time. And it gives every experience its own rails. And if we can do this right, and I think we've found a way We actually can change the way that all video games are financialized and get rid of what is primarily a hyper predatory sort of assumption around how we fund games and how games are financialized overall. And I I believe actually makes significantly more money, a, a lot more actually.
0: Yeah, if you look at games today and, you know, coming from a gamer perspective, you know, a lot of them are, you know, if you look at like a Fortnite, you have those that live on the game, the, the grinders and, uh, you know, the YouTubers, the influencers that just live on that, you know, version to version, they they build up, you know, a tremendous treasure, trove, a trove of, of assets, skins, emotes, um, the thing that always kind of killed me about Web One and Web Two legacy games, and this is obviously through observation, you know, you know, vis-a-vis, you know, my gaming experience and also my kids' gaming experience, is that if you go from like version ten to version eleven, um, typically, you know, if you build out a massive amount of assets, if you've played the game, and, you know, whether because you're grinding or because you just absolutely love it and you're addicted to it and you're just playing hours on end. Um, the assets that you win or the assets that you get through that version 10, usually, you know, don't always carry over to version 11 or version 12 or version 13. And they also, you don't really own them. Um, You know, if you are playing game, you know, in, in legacy and you've built this massive treasury again, because of sweat equity, you don't own them. This is not something that you actually, you know, can do anything with. Typically you can, there's a marketplace in these games, these ecosystems, And you can kind of sell them for their in-game digital asset, their in-game digital currency. But then you're basically just recycled where you have to then use that to buy other things within the game. And I've always thought that that was wrong, you know, that if you're playing a game, whether as a grinder or just someone who's this massive advocate, you're doing really well with it. and You're spending time and energy onto that. You should have some optionality. You should have some ability to decide okay, I'm either going to recycle and sell it into its own marketplace, or you know what? Maybe I get to you know, sell for some of the in-game currency, but I also get to maybe you know, cash it out at, you know, for fiat currency um, because I've put in 10 hours into the game and now I have this massively new you know, powerful avatar. Um, I'm just curious from your perspective, what do you think about the, the, kind of the, the confluence of you know, Web3 crypto gaming with the idea of ownership?
1: It's one of those things. uh, I I will say I have very non-traditional views, even in this space of, of a lot of these things. One of the challenges we run into is there is a very fine line to walk when it comes to how you reward players and how you play that very much common in the free-to-play space, the reason that we have those rewards that you've piled up thanks to sweat equity is because we need to make a person who doesn't spend money feel like they're rewarded as much as someone who spends money. Because people who don't spend money are actually content for the people who do. And so games are designed in this really interesting sort of loop where as the people who spend money have very cool stuff, people who don't spend money need to be given stuff equally, but it can't be as equal. And so you have this really interesting sort of setup with developers, to the poor players, to the whales, and that back and forth that uh, pushes people into the space of, oh, I have all of these outfits. But there's a there's a risk there as soon as we start talking about even ownership or selling them or anything, when we have something like the Diablo 3 auction house as an example. and And there's many others, but I always go back to it because a lot of people in the crypto space hear this from traditional gamers. Look at Diablo 3. And everyone's like, oh, it is. so they were mad it was pay to win, whatever. And a lot of people misunderstand the frustration people had with this. It wasn't that Diablo 3 became pay to win. It's that because and five or six of the top 10 streamers who quit over the Diablo 3 auction house were explicit. When I play, if I'm able to earn money doing a thing and it's significant, I will do that thing repetitively uh-huh. uh, in the same way that if... Uh, I play a monk character and there's a very specific weapon. It drops from this corner of this one map. I will kill rats in that area until I get that weapon because it's, okay. it's best one for me. But if that item, you know, that let's say it's for a map, necro because necros are what everyone plays. And so therefore they're worth the most. And I don't even like necros, but it's going to be worth the most. I'm now going to play for the money. And the rewards start shifting why I do what I do, and it's no longer a creative play experience. And we we get in some really difficult spots because where that ends up going, and where something like Axie did go, for example, is that it's not so much even about the players. Axie switched from early on, it was players playing, selling SLP, and doing that. And at some point, someone came in and went, Hey, actually, uh, I don't I mean, I mean, don't want to play Axie. This game's terrible, but I have a bunch of money. So let me buy Axies and then rent them to people and they can take a small cut. Because what we've done is we've kind of created a job rather than creating a game. And the line between them is actually fairly easy. If I gave you a million dollars, would you still play this thing tomorrow? And if the answer is no, you didn't create a game, you created a job. Conversely, if you look at esports players, I have my buddy Dindi, for example, literally won a million dollars playing Dota, and that night he went and played Dota, like this. It, he still plays; like he it, he will play till he dies because he just loves the game. Uh-huh. This, this kind of this separation and this difference, I think, is where we start talking about how we bring in what is to me the largest sleeping market for Web three games, which is the traditional gaming space. Yep, and the traditional gaming space cares first about good gameplay. That's it. Uh, The rewards or making money outside of it. All those things can be good. If we could ever get to a place where you could make a thousand dollars a day, playing a game, I'm sure we would find people who would be very excited about that. Yep. Putting that aside. um, Even then the game needs to be fun for people to dedicate time to it. Yep. And it's, it becomes this really sort of difficult give and take of how do you design an economy within a game that is outputting that, that makes those items valuable. Conversely, also makes gameplay valuable. And those are things that are almost directly at odds with each other. I had a uh, Aaron McDonald with the Fluffs group uh, and I had a back and forth on Twitter the other day, literally about this, because we have this really interesting move of wanting to take items everywhere and own them outside of the game. And what does that mean? and I, I'm not against this. I think there's, there's value there. I'm always just always asking, but why do you want to do that? Aside from the fact that you want to do it for the sake of being able to do it? Sure. But if I take an item, like for example, uh, halo two and three had the Hayabusa armor, Hayabusa mm-hmm. armor. If you saw someone wearing that, it meant very simply, uh, you don't go near that person in multiplayer. Right. Cause I'll fucking kill you. Right. Uh, you had to earn that armor and it, it, very particular is like all the skulls in single player, all of the achievements, which includes multiplayer achievements and 100% in the game. It's like, holy shit, that dude loves Halo. He will murder me. Um, but if I were to take that armor and put it just in general in a gigantic marketplace of everything else, it it's kind of just sort of shitty cyber ninja look. Like, like there's, better, there's better looking armor out there, I guess I would say. Mm-hmm. The meaning of the Hayabusa armor is lost instantly the moment that the meaning of that space opens up and everything is able to flood in the high boost armor, maybe for a few people in the know, but then it becomes like the way that um, I used to be able to go to concerts for bands that I loved. And I'd be able to recognize, Oh, that guy, that guy has that shirt from that one show that no one got to go to. I'm one of like 30 people in the world who give a shit about that, (laughs) but but like that shirt's worthless to everyone else. They don't even care. Um, So how do we have meaning work? And if we do have this gigantic space, the second challenge I have is we like we live in a world that is that right now. Um, in our world, I buy a T-shirt. I own that T-shirt. I can resell it. I buy Yeezys. I can resell Yeezys. I buy anything. I can sell anything. But what ends up actually taking precedence is a handful of hyper-global centralized corporations who control all meaning because they can set that up. And Disney. I mean, the answer is Disney. Basically controls what we like and what we don't, and the power of things—they're the most expensive. There's, there are exceptions, but it's a safe bet. And this is why, like Meta, is so excited to have this interoperability, because they're ready to pour billions of dollars into whatever it is to promoting and getting commercialized things to the point where, in the virtual world, we'll have Yeezys or whatever Kim Kardashian's selling, or mm. whatever Ellen DeGeneres is selling, or whatever it may be. And everyone will want that because it seems like the best thing, even though it has lost meaning in the larger space. And that's the question for me is, do we want like hyper localized meaning? Yeah, maybe not. But do we want to completely lose it in the mass of everything? And so when we talk about like items in NOR and we talk about what we're doing with them, uh, we we're been, they're NFTs. They're going to have 3D models. People can put them where they want. Um, but we're being very particular about how things are instantiated inside of our space. Mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily that um, you bring the Hayabusa armor and it looks like the Hayabusa armor, because again, it doesn't really look that good in comparison. It was awesome 15 years ago. It was like amazing. <laughs> but but like now it's like there's better cyber ninjas and right. nice kind of old hat, and it's not really as hardcore as it could be. But it's a question of how we ingest that and going through the process of actually bespoke ingesting these pieces of content to make sure they have the impact of meaning we want and that the people want and that the people who own them want. And this is, I think, one of the great challenges that the idea of full ownership and transferability comes. What do you want things to look like? And this is what I put it with fluffs. Uh, fluffs are rabbits. They are. And I'm not saying they're just rabbits. I I like them. I think they're hilarious. And I'm sort of fascinated by the project in a lot of ways. But to my dad, they're just rabbits. Right. To 99.9% of the population, they're just rabbits. So the question is, do you want to own a rabbit or a fluff? And the answer is a fluff. The communities really are big on their items. And this is true of every one of these nft communities and i go watch them and i talk to them and the people who are in love with their art they identify with it and they've chosen this one because it kind of reminds them of this part of themselves or they like this color more than others and i'm just like like dudes this this singular bit of meaning that you're getting is beautiful and if we blow out the wall and suddenly anything can come in here and you're everywhere else do you still have that Will my wife or my son recognize your NFT or will he want the Pokemon version? And well, the answer is the Pokemon version. And at that point, is your NFT now worthless on the large market? And this is where I I want to think through. I think we should have the ability. Like this is where I'm, again, an orthodox view. We should absolutely have totality of singular person ownership. I have no debate whatsoever that that should be the case. Everyone should own the things they own. It's insane to me that we don't. However, how that works and what it does, we should actually spend time really thinking through because this is the kind of stuff that I think um, we don't understand that we're building a future that is not far from how the real world works. And ultimately, Meta will be our Disney. And I really don't want Zuckerberg being the, you know, Michael Eisner of our time dictating what is good and what isn't and what sells based on his
0: whims and whatever makes him the most profit. You're getting me really close to doing my Mickey Mouse impersonation from South Park. So I'm not going to (laughs) do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it because that would just be too far out. It's been three years. People have a, a, a you know, a certain kind of characterization of me. I'm not going to start, you know, doing kind of, you know, Mickey Mouse from South Park.
1: But the, the, that talk- episode <laughs> nails it. That episode nails it, too, I, by it the way.
0: It does. Yes, you're absolutely correct. Um, so very quickly. So when people, you know, obviously, I know Noor is not ready yet. You know, it's just starting to, you know, get to, you know, obviously some of the NFTs that are going to be part of the the world here. But very briefly, kind of when people think about NOR as a game, you obviously alluded to kind of in a sporting sense. One of the things that was very interesting, when obviously, when we started talking about it early on, is this idea that if you die in the game, you die. Uh, whereas usually, uh, you know, in other games, you know, there's always kind of, you know, you can always come back. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so talk to us about kind of the world that you've built and kind of what it's going to look like.
1: Yeah. So uh, one of the big things I've learned with just general world building is the easiest way to get people to sort of be motivated or involved is to give them proper story. And so we've done that for the metagamers and the players and I think, and the developers, we've, we've created a space in which immortality is the norm. And it's a space where everyone is immortal. And One of the things we all think we want immortality, but if you read a lot of the science fiction, it's one of my favorite sort of tropes is the immortal who's so bored and wishes they could die, which is such a trope at this point. Uh, Robert Heinlein, once upon a time, um, Lazarus Long sort of started that, but this idea of this immortal who's like, oh God, I've done everything. I've done everything. I've done everything kind of mentality. So uh, what they've done in the space is they've actually created the games. And these are, you know, we're building the first one of these because we have to. Someone has to. We we have uh, third party developers we're going to be working with for other games and sports that'll be on the platform. Um, but for us, uh, our first one is uh, kind of a, uh, a Mirror's Edge uh, meets Road Rash um, with a, a competitive sort of Running Man type sort of setup. Uh-huh. And the idea is that people basically have the ability to again play this game for free as much as you want. Go have fun. At some point. Uh, we start the tournament season. That's every season has a tournament part. And when the tournament season sort of opens, players opt in. And when you opt in, uh, you start saying to people, hey, uh, I'm actually interested in taking part in the tournaments. And it's not a 12-man tournament. We expect to have a lot of players, so we expect quite a few. Um, every player at this point, when the first sign up We've, we've generated them in NFT. It's completely free. And we've done this because one of the interesting things NFTs has as a property is this weird permanence of space and time. Uh-huh. We, we call it your soul. And we do that very intentionally because we want you to become married to the parts of it, the way it instantiates, the way it sort of holds your pieces and, and unlocks uh, things for you because it is one of a kind. It's the beauty of NFTs. Once it's gone, it's gone. And we take that quite seriously because entering the tournament is not something to do lightly. The rest of the games, you can let's say, uh, you and I, David, we're practicing and I shoot you in the head and then later you stab me and we do this all day. That's great, we're immortals, no one cares, right? But when I step into the tournaments, that that immortal switch is turned off, that that changes, and how it changes is not permadeath like other games where, yeah, but you can sort of save scum, oh, and, right? No spawn. Uh, yeah, you can always you can always press F five or hide a save or find a developer buddy who will bring your character back or whatever sure. it is. Like this is this is different because when you load in, we check your NFT, you stake it, and on death we burn it. And at that point, all the stuff you've done because your NFT is essentially your two factor authentication for logging in. It's gone. Uh, the, the items you may have won, achievements you may have gotten whatever it may be is out the door. We've burned you Um, because we want death and life to matter inside of how our games play Uh inside of how our games are watched. And when you think about actually, this may be the last time this person plays this game. It's a weird feeling because it even works for things as lame as solitaire or minesweeper. It makes it a lot more exciting, even for minesweeper. Just like think about playing minesweeper and going, uh, oh, this is the last. If I die, I'm never playing it again as long as I live. It's weird. It's just a weird edge. And it's it makes it fun to watch. And there's a reason permadeath is loved in all the communities it's loved. Um, I consider it the only real way to play Diablo, uh, for example. But even Minecraft, like permadeath mode is, I think, almost like beyond creative, uh, the most popular mode uh, played by kids. It's It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows that they want this. And so we've just decided to utilize crypto to harden it and make it the most hardcore form of permadeath that there is. Yep. And I'm really excited to get this out there and have people sort of see how they respond emotionally to it. This idea that that's it.
0: I, you know, when I was well, obviously when I was looking through that a year ago, you know, the notion of that is exhilarating and also anxiety building. Um, and so there's a lot of emotion and there's, and that's important. You should have it 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 was to your earlier point about gaming being fun versus being a job there should be emotion to that there should be a response you know from your you know kind of your neural networks there you know about what you're about to encounter and so i think that's a very rich thing that um a lot of people would enjoy so as we're getting to the top of the hour i can talk to you for hours brooks and you know that already about us but um you know, how can people or when can people start to, you know, maybe see some things? Obviously, I know you guys have been building every single day for the last year or so. Um, you know, where can people learn a little bit more about Nor or, you know, potentially start getting, you know, you know early access to the community? Give some people a little bit of, a, you know, kind of one-on-one about where they can go.
1: Yeah, the easiest bet is um, if you think of our rollout pretty simply from here out uh, as of a week ago, we started our rollout for what I would call the Metagamer. Uh, so if you are that type of person and take stock, you no, know, if it, it's okay, if you are, there's a lot of people who are amazing who are, uh, you don't have to be a person who is ready to like play the game and be a champion. Uh, we started rolling out our NFTs for that. And we've begun our whitelist process. Um, the setup is a little more complicated than I'm able to get into here. But if you want to know more about that, I suggest you head to welcome to uh, You can also head to uh, uh, discord.gg forward nor. Um, which would be our discord and a, a genuinely wonderful community. We don't do a lot of uh, the more traditional sort of, Hey, if you post a lot, we're going to give you stuff or how many Twitter followers can you get us and you get things. So we don't have a, a lot of spam. We have a lot of very thoughtful, some very critical conversations, which I like. Um, we don't, we don't care as much about the FUD thing as, uh, as, as others. Uh, I, I, in the world of traditional games, we're much more used to people shitting all over what we're doing and hating <laughs> us. Uh, even when they love what we're doing, we're used to them shitting on us. Right. so uh, so we handle it a little bit differently, but it, it gives us a very interesting community and i i would love to have any of your listeners join uh, yes. beyond that, uh, in the next couple of months we will be starting to have our our you know alpha of our movement product, which is um we're building a toolkit not just for ourselves but for people who want to build with us uh, unreal five movement systems so that way we have a real physical systemic based movement system that people are able to utilize if you have a game you want to make rather than, uh, you know, having to have 900 ways. Oh, if I press jump, it what does it do? Well, now you'll know and you'll know how to move and people will be able to master it. And we're really excited about that. So that'll be coming soon. And then uh, we expect more uh, by the end of the year. It's kind of from here. It's a it's kind of a five and a half month, almost uh, death march uh, towards a, a decent launch this fall, which I'm excited about.
0: Well, I have to say, and for all of my listeners, I have gotten to know Brooks for the last year or so. Whenever I have questions about gaming and what's happening out there, I always ping him and get a few minutes of his time. There have been conversations about physics in games, which uh-huh. I had no frigging clue about, but Brooks did, and he educated me, and he schooled me on these things. I have to say for those that are listening, you know, please, you know, check out the website that Brooks alluded to. We'll put it into the show notes too. Uh, Very excited about, you know, obviously what Brooks and his team are building an exceptional team and Brooks, thank you for coming on. We'll have you on in a few months to talk about the launch and everything else that's happening.
1: I'm excited to uh, get there and uh, can't wait, David. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for listening in to Basslayer. If you like the show and all the different guests that we've brought on, please give a like and subscribe on Apple or Spotify or wherever you do listen to the podcast. Also, if you want to have a conversation or reach out to me, you can reach me out on Twitter at David J. Nage. And let's talk there. Or also you can find me on LinkedIn. And I look forward to having great conversations with you all about digital assets.